Sune Sorensen is our guest on Geopolitics and Empire. He's back for the third time. He's the founder of Librarium Associates, and he's also on the advisory board of BFI Capital at bficapital.com. He produces an excellent report breaking down what's happening in the world, and you can find that report at librariuminsights.com. Let me just remind listeners to subscribe to all of our channels on social media, share, like, uh, leave us a podcast review, uh, and a donation if you can via Bitcoin, Patreon, or PayPal. I would also urge listeners to subscribe to our email list that includes our podcast interview and a collection of important news headlines. So on to our guest. How are you doing these days, Sune? Yes, hello. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah, doing well, considering obviously busy times uh, on many fronts and obviously uh, the world is not standing still, shall we say. So so yeah, good. Uh, you know, I can't complain. All right. So starting off our third journey, we thought on this episode, we'd look at some trends uh, in innovation, technology, issues such as manufacturing, supply chains, uh, decoupling, globalization or deglobalization, um, all of these things which will be playing principal roles in establishing this new global order that's being fought out during this you know, current historic economic geopolitical shift uh, and dislocation that we are all uh, experiencing, driven by the big actors such as US uh, and China, as well as the EU. So innovation and technology will be key drivers uh, in determining the future power centers. And in your previous report, you write that you consider the power of innovation and technology an idea whose time has come as catalysts for change. And we see the giant, the US Republic and Empire, at a very critical crossroads, uh, I believe. And this is a time which will decide its its fate, I think, where it will decline in stature or reinvent itself like the Roman Republic did into uh, a Roman Empire to reign for another few hundred years. So where would you like to start, Sune? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, last time I was on, we had the conversation, it was on the back on our big China report. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to, as you say, look at the US. Um, in my recent report, I kind of cover that subject because after the, uh, actually, after I've done the, Ch the China focused report, I've reread um, Huntington's The Class of Civilizations, uh, which is obviously a classic and it has a lot to kind of uh, to give us. But there was a quote in there that I, when I read, I like to kind of take things out that makes me kind of think or makes me ask questions. And he he says this following uh, statement, they can constructively alter reality only if they recognize it. And that works kind of on multiple levels for me in, in terms of investment work, for example, because you can then question, does current statesmen uh, see the reality and therefore can they actually constructively alter it? Can they direct their nations or their regions into, into the right paths or are they out chasing or tilting at windmills, shall we say, uh, from an investment perspective, or you can ask yourself, do I see the reality of what's going on? And again, you can also look at markets and say, does other investors uh, see the reality of what's going on? So I was kind of pondering uh, this uh, this quote before doing this particular report, and it led me to the work that I, I've done on this one. So, you know, it led me to uh, to kind of question some of the conventional perspectives about global trade, globalization, who's the winners and losers, a lot of talk about that. Um, in the news, um, the dynamics of inequality in the U.S. and the West um, and how it's related to the so-called rise of populism, um, perhaps the perception of China's role. Um, so many of these key aspects uh, of the path ahead, they appear to be perhaps built on flawed foundations, but the more I kind of dug into it, um, and maybe the, the reality is not being recognized. And, um, you know, so that kind of is where it started off from. So, 
that led me to kind of look at innovation, which is a key. Uh, well, I've been always been looking at innovation in the key economic sectors as part of my investment work, and I started to see some overlap in terms of how technology or innovation or economies based on that also inform in both in terms of the social construct and how that then fit into the geopolitical space. So that's kind of what I was working on through this report. Um, so to kind of do my normal work, it's just kind of a big picture, 10,000 feet up, the long arts of history kind of approach. If you look at the last 200 years, shall we say, you had probably three major stages in certainly in Western societies, specifically the US. Um, you had five major innovation cycles. Um, so the three stages we've had is obviously the agricultural uh, reality, uh, where people were working uh, and living off the land and on the land. Uh, so in 1850, for example, in the US, around 60% of the population worked in agriculture. Today, that's less than 10%. And in the 40-year span between 1880 and 1920, it dropped by 25%. Now, that's some real disruption. Um, and then obviously, that came with a shift from a rural existence to an urban reality. Major societal changes uh, was part of that mix. Um, so then that fed into the manufacturing reality which then in an urban reality, um, and then in the, shall we say, 80s, 90s, we saw a real shift from, from manufacturing into services, leisure, innovation-based economy. Um, and again, at this stage, the U.S. was very much in leadership position. So that takes us then to the sort of five major innovation cycles. People can argue about kind of the terminology, but I came across a report um, which I found was interesting that kind of discusses this area and it's by Carlotta Perez um, and it was called Technological Revolutions and Techno-Economic Paradigms um, and she basically identified five of, the, five of these different uh, stages where the one, number the first one was the Industrial Revolution, then you had the age of steam and railways, then you had the age of steel and electricity and heavy engineering, then you had the age of oil and automobile and mass production and then you had the age of information and telecommunications. So those are kind of, if you look across those then, in relation to the US, it becomes clear that obviously the US kind of rode in on the back of the Industrial Revolution, took best practices uh, from what had happened in the UK, specifically in Europe, um, and then they pretty much led every other of these big uh, transitions since, um, and specifically on the fifth, which is the one we'll talk probably a bit more about, um, as it has been a real shift, um, and it's kind of led to the leadership we've seen since then. Um, so, I mean, in, in terms of that particular aspect, it's obviously, number one, kind of an amazing thing that tells you that if you've written, you know, certainly the last four as a leader in a leadership position of these major transitions um, that will have some real effects and it has obviously led to a lot of wealth so if you look beyond what i normally classify as the geographic and demographic bounties that was bestowed on the u.s from its beginning um, you know you can see why so much wealth has been created there in the subsequent uh, and subsequently around the world so you know again if we take a step back and consider the enormity of this achievement, it kind of gives you a pause to reassess the drivers of uh, some of these major social and economic changes in the last five or six decades. Uh, it also raises some questions about the path ahead. Can the US again dominate the next major leap? Can it harness it as it has the past three, um, as the incumbent champion of power in, in, in major control position? Uh, is it doomed to give up this position at the top of the hill? Um, and if so, is it already in some relative decline that we can perhaps monitor and, and identify? 
Um, so I, I think that's you know, that's one of the the big questions on our mind these days. You know, I, I've interviewed academic Michael Beckley, who wrote a book, uh, Unrivaled, where he considered that the U.S. still has the biggest net power and that China is is far behind. And he thinks that America will remain the world's sole superpower. You mentioned manufacturing as well, and you know how much does this decline in manufacturing? Um, mean going forward uh, in in the future uh, compared to China's uh, huge increase in, in manufacturing uh, as well as the the you mentioned this last cycle you know history is kind of working against America at, at this point because you know every single nation and empire has come and gone and so you know history kind of has a statement that nobody lasts forever and, and as well as this techn technology and innovation you know how far can all of this new technology innovation. Uh, maybe you can later tell us uh, about the ones that you're looking at. You know, everything from 5G, Internet of Things, and I, I can't think <laughs> off the top of my head uh, of further examples at the moment. But uh, tell us more about these things. Yeah. So again, with all, I mean, all those points you make there, I think the timing is obviously, you know, it's easy to kind of pinpoint that all empires end, but it's the timing of it that's the more difficult thing. And we can talk in decades or uh, centuries. So um, I think one of the things I took out, actually, in, in a prior report where I looked at the US, there was a quote by a gentleman, S.V. Bennett, uh, who said, we can fail and fail, but deep, deep against the failure something wars, something goes forward, something lights a match. And I think this captures, and I think in the current time we're in, it captures kind of the general human experience uh, as well as the path of the U.S. experiment, if you want, uh, very well. Um, so I think the U.S. can reignite the conditions for real substantial innovation. Again, um, I, again, if you go in and look at the last of the fifth major transitions that I outlined, um, the information, uh, the age of information and telecommunications, which is very important to understand, both in terms of trying to, to grasp some of those answers to those questions around the society, the United States, but also in terms of the bigger picture about those innovative areas you mentioned in terms of the conflict with China in terms of technology. So if you look at the U.S., they led um, this telecommunications information age. You know, the U.S. led the semiconductor space since its beginning. They invented and built out the Internet. And in doing so, it was in a position to harness the two most powerful innovations of the last 60 years. So U.S. companies have been getting a larger and larger share of the pie as software aid up the world, if you like. Um, and in most cases, deservedly so. Uh, investors in the space have done extremely well. Again, deservedly so. They identified the right trends and backed the best ideas. They navigated the creative destruction that followed in their wake. And if you look at uh, the 2019 Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report, and the U.S. accounts for just under 30% of global private wealth, and that's around $106 trillion. Uh, much of this was actually created during the last three to four decades in, in technology. Um, again, if you look at the U.S. tech sector, it's still dominant globally and by far the most profitable. Um, again, if you look at some of the McKenzie work um, on that sector, uh, basically, between 2015 and 17, North American corporations, they took an $82.5 billion loss in energy and materials sector, but they locked down $220 billion gain in tech and making the North American continent the most profitable corporate uh, we say, area uh, in, in terms of the world. So, And that's probably understated numbers because a lot of this comes from international IT uh, intellectual property-related earnings, which is normally run through offshore low-tax jurisdictions, so low visibility and perhaps the total amounts there. 
Um, but when you look at this, uh, if you can control in, in innovation, specifically in this space, when you control the initial rollout of a major new innovation, one that has the capacity to transform other industries and activities, you can basically shake up the whole techno-economic paradigm. I would, you would have the best practices model. You would have the most effective use of these new technologies. And within and beyond the new industries created by the initial innovation, you are in the optimal position. So there's something self-reinforcing in that. <laughs> Obviously, you can argue that perhaps um, we've gotten a bit far out in the innovation tree, <laughs> out in the thin branches of the innovation tree, which is perhaps the Internet. That was kind of the roots of that. And yes, the U.S. capital and a lot of the, uh, the brain power has perhaps been... Um, distracted uh, trying to kind of figure out what is the next best uh, food app or you know innovations that doesn't really solve hard problems but where perhaps we're just focusing on leisure and consumption and that may have to change if they're not to fall off and, and take that decline that you described but again once you have in a society built this kind of framework um, then it's not something that you can easily change and it doesn't just fall away to the side and that's why i think perhaps the u.s is probably well positioned, um, but certainly not in a relative sense, not as powerful as it was perhaps back when we saw that kind of semiconductor to internet uh, and that really got harnessed back in the beginning of the millennium. Yeah, I mean, some of what, we, what you say kind of, um, it's uh, interesting, Warren Buffett recently came out and said nothing can stop uh, the US. So I guess he was very uh, optimistic, although he was selling off billions in airline stock. So um, we'll see what happens. But you also man mentioned the se uh, semiconductors. I think a lot of people have been questioning Moore's law. And in the semiconductor space, they're saying there may not be uh, much uh, runway to go further. So th they seem to be reaching in some regards, as you say, uh, ceiling or, or, or less runway to, to move with. And we covered China last time, but it's been a while since, since that podcast came out. Uh, what can you say about China uh, having uh, an edge here or if they have some new disruption uh, that can push China uh, ahead of the U.S.? Um, so I think we can come into the China and the semiconductors a bit more, but um, I think semiconductors is perhaps the weakness. Again, I would actually say um, when you look at where the competition lies in the innovation, um, I think you can look at, again, in the report in this specific China segment, we actually go into this, what is innovation really uh, in terms of you know building out an economy? And yes, when you're talking about um, semiconductors, um, and you're talking about some of the very novel uh, sites of innovation, the U.S. Is, and the U.S. corporations, I should clarify, are well ahead of anyone uh, else around. Um, but there are many layers of innovation. And one of the big key things, I think, to look at is the innovation in the process of manufacturing items. Because specifically in the context of what we're talking about in terms of this technological competition between regions, it's one thing if you have corporations who are very good at novel innovation, but in your larger construct, you basically outsource all aspects of manufacturing, which means you gradually start to lose the grasp of how to control and, and innovate in the process of manufacturing, which is what basically went into Japan. It's something that Germany has been good at. Uh, the Vorsprung-Durk technique in Germany or uh, some of the, the sort of Japanese concepts of how to manufacture uh, better and better, um, where maybe instead of constantly thinking about how to make more products and innovate in the production side and the productive in the product side, is actually focusing on the process and how you can get better and better at making things. And within that comes obviously cost efficiencies, 
which then means that you can produce goods um, at a high quality at a cheaper and cheaper rate. Um, whereas if you're just focusing at the top of the innovation tree, you may come up with those world-changing ideas, but you may not actually be able to deliver on it without drawing on other people's ability to manufacture. And that's perhaps one of the, uh, the challenges that we see on the horizon starting to appear. So you mentioned manufacturing, and, and you know, feel free, we can jump back and forth between uh, the topics, uh, innovation. But so talking about manufacturing, um, and we have the, the problems with the supply chains, and there's a lot of people talking about, is this the end of globalization or is this deglobalization? I, I kind of have a feeling that it's more of a recalibration. So I, I feel that globalization is going to uh, go ahead, but we are in a stage where it's just kind of recalibrating and that supply chains will, I think, come closer to, to home, at least to the regions, and that we're going to see more kind of like a regional regionalism, regional integration, like you have the European Union and you have the Eurasian Union forming and this sort of thing. So could you talk a little bit about uh, how you see the globalization uh, today as well as um, whether you how you will see the change in, in the supply chains okay well let's start with the globalization because again that's something that gets bantered around uh, a lot at the moment um, so I think globalization as people use the term you know comp compromises uh, comprises many things uh, different elements you know whether it's cross-border uh, flow of trade capital data ideas technology people you know workers business travelers migration tourists what have you so obviously all of those aspects students you could mention uh, all of those things have been at a very high level in the last let's say three or four decades um and that's perhaps what people kind of qualify as globalization in in that term uh, i think it's a kind of very loaded term where you know it kind of is a neat box uh, where people drop a very diverse com uh, and complex factors and developments and then they either call it the greatest thing ever or they blame it for all the world's problems um, I think what really happened um, is that from, let's say, early 1990s to around 2016, I think that was a unique global environment. You know, the world was kind of um, basking in the afterglow of the Cold War. The U.S. was in the sole kind of hegemon position. Um, there was no real contest in terms of rivals, uh, groups of rivals, and any individual other power. Um, and for a while, it was time of you know high prosperity, um, more and more of all these different factors, people moving around the world, ideas moving around the world, trade uh, branching out. And obviously, it was also kind of aligned with the rise of China economically uh, at first as a kind of... Uh, very junior partner in, in this global uh, supply chain, manufacturing chains, um, and then growing to a stage where we started to see around the time that Z came in in 2012, um, on the back of the, the global financial crisis in 2008, obviously China started to kind of be very much uh, a competitor in certain fields. Um, so I think that's what globalization is. And if that is more, as we say, a space of history, a space of time where we're seeing a change, it's perhaps clear that what was between 1990 and 2016 is no longer. <laughs> and um, I think that will have some real effects because we build out a system um, where you have seen uh, global trade go from, let's say, in 1960, I think it was around 14% of global GDP. In 2018, I think it was around 30%. So that's obviously a huge jump. I think we're still around those level, though it has kind of uh, flattened out in the last couple of years. And, and then the question obviously comes, what happens next to, to that level of trade? Um, I think if you look at, say, um, 
even before what we come into the current situation, we had started seeing global trade start dipping off. And in the last 30 years, I think there's been kind of free, free sustained downturns. And we, in 2019, kind of ended into the third of those. Um, so obviously, we had kind of a sharp reactive drawdown from the COVID-19. Um, and perhaps what we're starting to see is that it's a bit like an elastic. You pull it down far, it's going to come up a bit quicker. Um, and we're maybe not going to reach the same level as 2018 for a while. And maybe we flatten out around 80, 90% of what used to be. Um, but I think within that, <clears throat> instead of having perhaps the, the kind of very long, complex uh, supply chains, we will see a regionalization. And I think that's already been underway. Whereas if you look at Asia, for example, I mean, China has built out infrastructure um, in terms of um, supply uh, around the countries in, in Southeast Asia, particularly. Um, so I think that will perhaps be replicated around the world in, in different categories. Um, but I think, again, you know, globalization has kind of taken us, if you can, you take the long strokes of time, um, maybe six, seven decades. I think in 1960, uh, global GDP was around $1.4 trillion. Uh, in 2018, that was 85 trillion. So, as we discussed just a little bit before, some of the biggest winners of this has been U.S. corporations and investors. Uh, obviously, China has risen on the back of this and managed to bring out uh, its population out of poverty, uh, educate that population better, uh, build infrastructure, and put itself in a position to be a competitor. Um, so, the question becomes: all of these different, and the question then becomes going forward. Um, this is obviously some powerful interest to have benefited from this. Will we tear all that down? Will we find some middle ground? Will there be uh, other factors that come into play in terms of politics at regional levels? Um, so those are some interesting areas to look at. So, for example, do you think, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of U.S. offshoring to, to China. Do you think some of it will, some aspects or some products or goods will be manufactured in, in Mexico instead for the U.S. market? Do you think we'll see these kinds of things? I think you're already seeing that. I think it's a natural part of it. Um, I think as we improve, um, so again, when we talked about those big five or the big three changes from agricultural to manufacturing to service-based, uh, technology-based economies, when we talk about those different things, I think some of the, the trends we've seen in that is the automation of industry. So if you can, so let's say, so when you were a U.S. corporation in the 1890s and you decided to take part of your manufacturing and spread it out across the world, uh, China being one of the key places, um, you did that because of cheap labor, namely. Um, so we had this system where we were kind of dragging out raw materials of, out of Africa and South America, shipping it dry bulk around to Asia, to China, big factory of the world, produce goods, put it into containers, ship it back to around Europe, to the U.S. And that was kind of the model for a while. When you look at it logically, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense um, <laughs> in terms of the use of energy, the terms of use of material. Um, and then what obviously started to happen was that China's labor force uh, started to do better. They started to be better educated. They started wanting to move up that innovation ladder as an economy. Um, and that obviously meant that labor and wages had to rise so that there would be this big consumer market growing in China. But for then for a U.S. corporation or a European corporation, you would then start saying, okay, the advantage in terms of labor costs is not there anymore. Um, and in this last two or three decades, we've seen, you know, robotics being implemented in many industries like the auto industry. Um, and that is spreading out and has been for the, certainly for the last decade or two, even in China. 
So if that is the case, then you start saying, well, why, why do we have to you know, ship things around the world? I can manufacture closer to my consumers. So what you've seen happening is that large global corporations may have had a unit that served the Chinese market in China, and maybe it served Asia from there. And then maybe they had a unit in Eastern Europe that served the European market, uh, and maybe they had a unit in Mexico or indeed in, in some of the southern states in the US, for example, in auto uh, industry has been quite popular. So that's where you've seen that regionalization. I think that trend was already there. I think what has happened maybe in the last five years has been the political aspect of this has come to the surface of it around uh, some of these uh, real problems that has been facing people in 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 the West, uh, the people who didn't uh, have and see the benefit from this kind of move up the innovation ladder for their economies, uh, because that demands high uh, education uh, to really access that and be a part of that. And again, either you then work in services, in consumer retail, um, in those kind of spaces where you're then uh, working at minimum wage uh, with no real benefits, um, and you're obviously not participating in this growth that you see all around you, which then leads to that social problem, which I think has then been driving some of the conversation around it. But in terms of the actual supply chains, I think there was a natural long-term trend that was towards regionalization. And I, I did want to ask you about you know your thought on on food and agriculture. You, I believe, in your report, you talk about how uh, there was a big decline in in uh, agriculture uh, employment in in the U.S. I think it's gone down drastically. We see a lot of farms going out of business and the big uh, corporate corporations um, uh, making our food. And now we're starting to see big. Um, Issues like, for example, I'm here in Kazakhstan now, and the food food inflation has gone ten percent, uh, and for some other products, it's gone twenty, thirty percent. It's I mean, it's pretty crazy. And we're seeing now in the U.S. the the meat supply. There's a shortage uh, uh, of meat because of the lockdown uh, measures and quarantine, and so uh, they're putting purchase limits in, in stores. The price inflation, price is going up, uh, and so we see a breakdown. Uh, with the food uh, situation uh, as well as you know there's there have been some interesting things uh, this spat between Australia and China where China has threatened to boycott Australian wine and beef uh, we see coffee growers in Latin America suffering because they've never experienced such a crisis scenario that's hit uh, all of their supply chain uh, points at the same time and meanwhile we have the UN's World Food Program warning that I think next year we could have a quarter of a billion people on the brink of star starvation due to this crisis. So, uh, what are important aspects uh, do you see for the regarding the food and agriculture? I think that's three layers too. Number one, I want to clarify that the fact that the less and less people work in agriculture in the U.S. has had nothing to do with the output. They're in fact one of the most productive food hubs in the world and will continue to be so. It's one of the strengths of the U.S. It's just the fact that they got so much more productive or agricultural system has been automated to a degree where you only need very few people to actually run and still have further and further output of, of product. And then there's a layer to it, which I discuss in the report in, in relation to some of the um, in terms of food security and how that may affect some of the emerging market countries, specifically ones affected by climate change. And I think that's a real important long-term trend to try and understand. So uh, actually in this report, I have um, I overlapped two different maps I came across, which I think is interesting. One is basically a map that projects the population growth between 2015 and 2050. And so if you look at where all the young people are and where all the the 
basic demographic growth is. So that will be parts of the Indian subcontinent. It will be large parts of Africa, basically. Then if you overlay that with a map of where there is high agricultural risk from climate hazards, <laughs> pretty much it again hits exactly those regions. So you have this huge billions of people, basically, young people, people with um, you know who want to go out in the world and, and obviously create something better for themselves, being faced perhaps with some of the very basic uh, risk uh, factors such as water water and fre- fresh water and, and food uh, insecurity. And historically, that leads to problems locally, which then feeds into migration trends, which first go to urban areas, which are then often ill-prepared to, to even host the people that they already have. Um, and then you will have conflict on the back of that, and then you have larger-scale migration. So I think in terms of food security, that is perhaps one of the longer-term t- trends that I think people really need to keep an eye on. Then we have some questions around the current situation, which is more about um, supply constraints, uh, about national national focuses on securing uh, uh, food for your population. And then you have some geopolitical conflicts, which you mentioned the Australia-China aspect um, are playing out. Uh, so you have some real supply constraints because we've had people out of work. We've had fields not being tended. Um, we have had this huge schism between people staying at home, needing food delivered, um, but not going to restaurants, which was perhaps a big buyer of uh, of food materials. So some go to waste. Our, our infrastructure for dealing with this has not been as flexible as you would have wished. Um, so I think that can lead to some inflation. It can lead to some rising food prices regionally, and that could cause some problems. Uh, but I think it's a shorter-term thing. In fact, in terms of actual food supply, uh, right now the world is producing uh, a pretty high output for the last you know, four or five years. Um, but I think going forward, you're going to have, just as you're going to see people wanting to have uh, regionalized their strategic uh, supplies, whether that's in pharmaceuticals, um, which we've seen uh, the current situation, whether it's part of the wanting to um, have supplies that are national in terms of security, whether that's in telecoms, 5G, or whether that's in semiconductors. Um, I think that will also come into the food space to a certain degree where regions are going to start saying, oops, what happens uh, if supply lines change, if things don't flow as we like them to, where where is our weaknesses? And people are going to try and obviously deal with that. And again, obviously, the Middle East is an area that in terms of food and water is is really a high-risk area. Um, So again, for China, it has a huge population. That has certainly been part of their last four decades has been to try and secure food supplies. And we talked about it, I think, last time about their reach into Eurasia for some of this. Um, but that will be a constant challenge. A place like India, this will be a huge issue for them. They have huge water problems uh, and that obviously feeds into agriculture. Uh, so those are kind of how I would look at, at the food supplies aspect of it. So I think longer term, you have some real issues in some of the fastest growing parts demographically of the world where food insecurity will be an issue. I think then you're going to have an overlaying factor around supply chains, which will also feed in uh, to the food supply. Um, And then I think right now we have a breakdown of the existing system and that can lead to bottlenecks or outright stoppages of of transfer of food between countries, whereas we've had a system where food has been flowing around the world based on global markets. And if you start getting into national or regional markets or hoarding in some parts, then you're going to have some issues. You mentioned the security for certain sectors. It was interesting. I think it was today reported uh, that the U.S. might pull spy planes from Britain if Britain offers uh, 
Huawei yeah, a contract. So we're we're seeing that play out as well. Uh, what? Because there's so much information here, and your reports are so dense, well researched, uh, packed with information. There's there's so many places to go. Um, what else is important for you here? Um, I would say number one, I think that's a lot. Again, as I always say, and that's why I like the long term is there's actually so much noise out there so you know every day you mentioned the huawei the uk australia wine you know if you if you sit and dive into all these things you you will never get to anywhere besides being extremely confused so i actually think the more i normally say the more the narrative runs ahead of itself the more i try and slow down and step back and and basically shut down a lot of channels of of, of input and just trying to focus on, on some of the key questions and and trying to figure out what is actually knowable and what are the areas that you can actually control or kind of actually get a grasp on? Because else it doesn't lead anywhere in terms of actually having some some understanding of some areas of, of what is a very uh, much a period in flux. So I think that's maybe one of the key things uh, to look at in that aspect is just get a grasp of things, what is actually happening, what is going to transpire, and what is a lot of noise. We do have a, a political environment, um, certainly in the U.S., which is very much based around what we call in the political world uh, flooding the zone, which basically means that if you have bad news that are sticking to you, then the best thing you can do is just basically flood the whole news zone with all kinds of news that gets people running around and they're distracted from, from maybe some of the core issues. So I would be, <laughs> I would be a bit careful with some of those issues, but there is certainly um, some, some real things that are going on uh, in terms of the U.S.-China relationship, and that will have some feed, uh, feed, sort of feeding through to places like Australia or the U.K. Um, because, as we just discussed, we build out this um, we build out this incredible system over four or five decades, where we were focusing on on profit uh, maximization, uh, where we basically build out <laughs> just-in-time inventory practices where everything would work perfectly, but when it didn't work perfectly then we stumble and, and that's what we're seeing a little bit at the moment. We're seeing disruptions and they're kind of cascading around the world with you know one, two second tier uh, repercussions when something stops in one place and it leads into something else because it's all interconnected. Um, we've seen that in the healthcare system and supplies. Um, then I think you look at the national security imperatives and I think that'll definitely reshape the global supply chains. You know, free trade, uh, globalization may give way to some protectionism um, I think in terms of the, the China-US relations, it's important again to, you know, when you sit in the moment, it can feel like this is such a huge new novelty aspect to it because we have short-term memories. Um, but, you know, not so long ago, you know, we had the Tiananmen Square crackdown, for example, on China, where, you know, basically they were, you know, blockaded out of, out of the global system after having entered it uh, for a period of time. And again, you know, they obviously came back out of that. So it's not unheard of that we have these real freeze and relations. Um, we have November elections in the U.S., so a lot of people will be watching to that and see what changes will that make. You know, if there is a change in leadership, will that be uh, what would that mean? Uh, both in terms of the relationship with Europe, in terms of the relationship, obviously, into Asia and with China specifically. Um, so I think there's a lot going on right now. Good time to kind of stand back and try and, and first of all get a grasp of your history. Um, and then to ask questions and basically try and turn out the noise and just kind of focus on some of the things that are knowable, um, both in relation to global relations in terms to the current crisis. Um, so that would kind of be my, my, my key points. 
every time I, I talk to you, I, I, I kind of get the impression that you're very forward looking and uh, optimistic. Uh, I, I have a feeling you're very <laughs> optimistic looking for opportunities. And I thought I'd get your perspective on the current financial uh, crisis. Um, I interview people that have all kinds of different opinions. And we have people saying that this is, you know, the worst crash in the history of the world. Uh, or that it's going to be, it's at least as bad as 1929 Great Depression, it's twice as bad, uh, or it's something that we can recover from uh, quicker. So just, you know, not to spend, spend so much time on it, but, you know, what are your thoughts and, and the people around you, uh, what are they saying? Well, I think that's interesting, and I think in terms, I mean, <clears throat> I think specifically in financial uh, in financial space, there's a saying that um, you know history is kind of a flat circle, as in that we keep going around, and then it's kind of the same things uh, that over time. So you can really learn from from looking backwards. Um, you know, the human mind tends to overshoot uh, both optimism and pessimism, and that obviously in financial markets very much uh, gets expressed in a way where you, it's very tangible. Um, so. You know, we normally have these periods where we have extended periods of prosperity and that then makes people complacent and, you know, which in turn mean in, in financial markets, you know, rising valuations, uh, we have skewed incentives that promote kind of bad process, positive outcomes uh, mentality, which is basically a bit like, uh, you know, playing Russian roulette and winning a million dollars and then thinking you're a genius on the back of that. <laughs> uh, you don't maybe want to repeat that or teach your kid to, to go that route. Um, so you basically get poor businesses and investor practices. Um, you get this fragility coming into the system as leverage build up as, as people start thinking this will never stop. Um, and, you know, if you look at 2019, well, if you look at, for example, credit markets, you know, there were the, they were very covenant light, meaning that people were basically taking on more and more risk for less and less uh, guarantees uh, and basically chasing higher and higher ret uh, returns or higher, higher into the branches of this credit tree that had, built, that had grown up in, in, this, in the good times. And, and you know, so from our perspective coming into um, 2020, I certainly had no idea that we were going to have a pandemic. <laughs> but what we were looking at was, for example, that we were looking at the fact that investor behavior stood out to us as being um, blind to the risks, um, greedy. Uh, we started to see, you know, crazy valuations. So what we were doing at the end of last year was really saying, well, it's time to take profits off the table. It's been a good run. Maybe we did that a bit early. Um, we started to hedge some positions. Uh, we started basically looking and asking ourselves, this is good times, but what uh, when winter comes, what lines of business do you want to be in? What lines of business do you not want to be in? Uh, and then we started making adjustments. Um, and so when we came into this year, uh, we were actually hedged in, in quite a lot in cash. Um, and, you know, just really saying, okay, what are some of the opportunities that we can see if we do have uh, a sell-off, if we do have some something that ignites all this kind of dry tinder that's built up in our financial and economic systems? Um, and obviously then <laughs> we pretty much started off 2020 with – you know, all kinds of things going on. So you had fires in Australia, you had Iran situation with the US and it kind of, I got the feeling, one of the things that I kind of observed and I look at my notes from the beginning of the year was that the ten, there was a feeling that something tangible was developing and there were kind of a lot of different um, constituencies, whether that's in politics or in financial markets or in the economies, individual regions who are looking for change and was kind of saying, what is the trigger? What's going to happen? And we kind of tested the waters with some of these kind of developments, uh, but it didn't quite it didn't quite stick to the degree that we've seen. So when the COVID nineteen hit, um, 
it started so to see either we had an accumulation of this kind of concern about preparing the mind for change. Some people may have seen some benefit in, in a major change. Um, and some people saw political agendas that could be realized in this change. Um, and as we just mentioned, the financial markets were certainly stacked high. So again, some people are probably looking for reasons to pull out of that and then maybe protect their profits. Um, so all of this kind of stacked up to to what we then saw, which was indeed a very steep decline across pretty much all asset classes, um, you know, bigger than 1930s in terms of the drop from the top to the bottom. But then we've obviously seen um, our good friends of the uh, the global central banks really step into to the breach and unleash, you know, record amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus, and that has brought financial markets up. It's kind of put the whole per whole situation in a bit of a freeze while we kind of wait to see what is the actual economic damage. Will the economic uh, reality be that they bounce back like global markets have with all the fiscal, all the stimulus? Or will it be much more difficult to uh, reignite the animal spirits in the real economies? Um, I think the answer is probably that they will meet somewhere in the middle, as in that the economies will come back um, but there will be sectors that will not. So we talked a little bit about airlines. Uh, I don't think you're going to see a lot of, of the travel industry do particularly well, and that will feed over into tourism-based economies. It will feed into physical retail properly. Um, so there will be some real, there will be industries that will not come back. There was industries that were already challenged. So we, uh, certainly the auto sector, for example, uh, the oil industry, I thought were in gradual and, and fundamental decline in terms of uh, demand dynamics. Um, and obviously, I think that's been fast-tracked into the situation and will be one of the risks going forward. Um, and then there'll be, back to our initial point, there will be a need for innovation. There'll be a need, not just at company level, but at industry level and at national levels to kind of reinvent, to reignite, and to really, to say, maybe take this as an opportunity to say, what is the path ahead? What is the next step that we can take uh, how can we support our industries how can we build the framework for continuous innovation through education through if we're going to spend these trillions of dollars or euros how can we deploy this capital in our national economies regional economies to basically build a foundation because i think as we kind of came to the end of 2019 there was many key industries and key regions that were in need of reinvention and that's what we're looking at then who can get it right and who will get it wrong? Those are the big questions. Are there any other, um, I mean, you've covered a lot. You've covered a lot, a lot of the, the points uh, that I had uh, as well as that you had. Uh, before I ask you maybe some points for, for listeners, uh, any other um, risks or opportunities that, that like practical stuff for, for listeners, are there any other points you, you'd want to make? Yeah. I think investment-wise, and, and also if you're an entrepreneur and a business owner, um, I think if you if you take those that mix, so we got this huge fiscal fiscal monetary stimulus flowing in on top of perhaps a pretty sluggish economy that no, that could lead to something akin to stagflation, which then mean obviously you have some risk in that. There's some opportunity in that. You know, you can look at physical assets, you know, precious metals. Uh, you can look at, at at you know real estate, other uh, real assets and commodities which have been beaten down. Um, I think. More interestingly, and back to the innovation side, um, from my perspective, you know, there is opportunity in all of this. So if we are shortening and deconstructing our global supply chains, 
you know, that means we're going to have this automation, this drive to automation, which means that in that space, there will be companies that will, you know, create great solutions for that process. Also, if you're regionalizing, it will mean that there's gaps. So, you know, if manufacturing is going to come back to Mexico or to the U.S., what are the gaps? What has China been doing? What are we going to be doing closer to home? What are the businesses that may do that? And, and suddenly they may have certain interest uh, that they didn't have for their product before. Uh, what are the new businesses that may start up? You know, again, depending on where you are and what type of investing you do, that may be interesting. Um, if you look at um, if you look at another big, in, big kind of longer term trend, um, I think you can look at so even within the, what I call smart automation, which is basically the merging of big data analysis, AI, and robotics. Uh, new kind of manufacturing systems. Uh, I think you can look at things like 3D printing, which will be a part of that solution that comes alongside material sciences, new materials that we will use uh, in that process. It comes alongside the Internet of Things, uh, which is about industrialization um, of of this uh, sort of smart automation. Again, that comes with 5G uh, communications. It comes with huge demand for advanced semiconductors, um, software to, to kind of tag it all along. There's some countries like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Germany, Switzerland, uh, where I sit today, uh, China even. Uh, and obviously the big tech in the US, uh, companies like Microsoft is probably going to do pretty well out of that. Um, it will have some kickoff effects into the industrial commodity mix. So we've seen that a bit in the energy transition, um, where we obviously sh- you know, kind of shifted to battery materials. Uh, we've seen the obviously oil price getting big whack. Um, I think you may start seeing that across base metals as well, uh, whereas we may need uh, more lithium, we may need more copper, we may need more of the rare earth materials, because that is really what the tech economy is built around. Um, I think another big trend is this increased digitalization, which everyone has realized as they sit at home and work from home, uh, how important that is. So again, in that space, there's some overlap. You're going to need semiconductors. We're going to need uh, 5G. Um, I think in terms of an area like government, for example, which is an area that is still pretty manual in practice, maybe we're starting to realize that we need a system that actually works without us having to stand in line uh, with you know 200 other people to hand in some physical form to get something done. So there's countries like Estonia who was built out an e-government. I think that would be a trend to watch and, again, maybe some opportunity. I think you will see that in healthcare as well, as we can't all kind of pack into to hospitals waiting for a bit of a problem. Uh, so telemedicine might be an interesting area. Um, I think in terms of the functioning of the financial system, I think that trend was the fintech. It's already pretty advanced, certainly in China. I think that will also spread into the West a lot more. So again, we have a functioning financial system, even if people are not able to go to the physical bank branch. Um, I think well, the energy transport transitions, I think, are interesting areas. Food and water, again, there's issues in that. Where there's issues, challenges, someone will have an idea, an innovation that will solve those issues. That has been the history of, of, of humanity. Um, and again, there you can see real value being created. Um, so those would kind of be my, my key things. Again, you know, if you look at if you look at times of, of the most challenging times, whether it's been around the world wars, uh, if it's been around the depression, you've seen huge leaps in innovation. Um, you know, and I think that'll probably be the case again. So that's why I'm perhaps more positive. Certainly, longer term, I think if you invest patiently in innovation in core economic sectors. I think that's perhaps the best way to ride out any storm. And I think it will be very much the case in what we're seeing right now. 
Yeah, you really laid out a, a, a broad framework and, and, and vision there. You've given a lot of uh, examples. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of that stuff already. Uh, you know, I'm in the education field, so we've seen Zoom, for example. That's another one, yeah. That's another one. Education, government, and, and fintech, and healthcare, I think, are areas where we've seen um, digitalization of many other parts of the economy, but I think we are lacking in certainly in education and government affairs. I think those would be two of the big, big, big opportunities. Are there any final thoughts that you have to, to leave with us uh, as we're approaching the, the midpoint of uh, 2020? Well, I think your 2020 is the start of uh, another decade, obviously. Um, but I think it's also very much, uh, as we said, that I wouldn't call it, people call it globalization, but I think we come to an end of that kind of cold, uh, post-Cold War glow and we are into something different and that's already manifesting itself. I think that happens no matter who sits in the White House in 20, uh, beyond 2020. Um, I think that happens because all these major trends around the world is already underway. I don't think it's necessarily all negative, but I think the next three or four years may be a time of flux and a time of, of reordering and that will have risk and opportunities coming alongside it um, but uh, you know with everything you know it's that thing keep on keeping on you know that's how we get stuff done and I think people got to look at that that there will be times like what we've faced in the last couple of months and um, we'll be coming out on the other side of it specific to the current situation you know I'm in, I'm in Switzerland in Europe um, you know we're coming where things are starting to turn back to normal I kind of been keeping an eye into Asia because they were kind of first hit and you can see you know things that are happening there there's parts of the economies that are not coming back there's real suffering but there's also a lot of, of kind of normalcy and, and, and kind of trending back towards normal so you know i know the u.s is a little bit behind on the curve on this and that'll take a bit longer and i think there will still be pockets going forward where there will be issues um but you know i like to focus on on what is knowable and what can you control um and i think there's plenty of things that that kind of gives me uh a positive outlook from an investment perspective or even from kind of a business perspective um, but also in terms of humanity bigger bigger picture in terms of the opportunity of being able to say okay some of the things that we have been pushing for the last four decades may not be the future maybe we need to go back and look at it you know i think you know another area i could mention a little bit so when i was doing the work about what happens next to the economy uh, i came across um something called the circular economy and basically that is potentially in my view um a huge frame of thinking in terms of the economy it's a it's a paradigm change so basically we've had this economy which is linear whereas we described it we take raw materials out of the ground in one part of the world ship it around use a lot of energy make a product sell that product to a consumer who then uses it and then throws it away that's a linear process so the circular thing basically takes that line and turns it around. So then we'll be creating something, whether it's building a building, building a mobile phone, building a fridge or a car. The idea is that we recycle the things uh, that are in those. So again, we talk about these rare herbs and these metals and how we've been taking that out of the world. Makes very little sense to dig it out in Peru or Chile and then take it to Germany and use it for six months and then bury it in some dump site somewhere uh, so there's this thing about urban mining about how businesses can think about the full process of what they're producing i think that obviously has some environmental goodness to it and um, but in terms of a business model in terms of a paradigm change that really would solve a lot of the issues it would actually be a big part of the regionalization it would be how uh, we would not be tied to commodity producing nations in let's say parts of africa or in the middle east for example so i think that that may be a longer term major shift i think so if you look at the sustainable kind of area, I think they may not have all the answers <laughs> for sure, 
but they may be asking some of the right questions. And I think you can take that and, and use that in both in terms of national security, in terms of bringing your supply chains back home, uh, those supply chains all the way from not just manufacturing, but also the raw materials that go into them. So I think there is, you know, there's huge opportunity in this change. And I hope we kind of direct some of all these trillions of dollars and euros that are being pushed into the system uh, to really focus on education, focus on building out economies uh, in a positive way. There's going to be a lot of malinvestment, but hopefully enough of it goes into the right places. And that's kind of how I look at the path ahead. So for every uh, gloom uh, analyst that I interview, such as Peter Schiff or Mark Faber, uh, I have folks such as Soon Sorensen to come on to give another perspective. And I, I appreciate um, all of your views. It's good to, like John F. Kennedy did, you know, he listened to everyone around him and then he made his own decisions and came to his own uh, conclusions so um listeners can find your work at librariuminsights.com uh, and you're on twitter at librarium views uh, as well as people can go to bficapital.com uh is there any are there any other sites uh, to mention um, I've started some work, but it's just starting up with uh, Dr. Harold Malmgren at uh, something called the Malmgren Strategic Institute, um, which is more research, research facility focusing around some of Dr. Malmgren's, you know, six decades of work. I'm trying to draw some lessons out of that for a more positive path forward. Uh, so we will be announcing something on that, I think, in the com couple of months ahead. Uh, so that's maybe something to keep an eye out for. Um, outside of that, Check me out on Twitter or go on the on the website and send me a message. Always happy to hear from people out there, questions, observations, ideas, and so forth. And I don't recommend uh, um, lightly his Twitter. I, I really find you put up a lot of charts and stuff. I often retweet. There's a really lot of it's a really valuable uh, Twitter feed uh, that you have. And finally, one more question: uh, Are there any good books you've been reading in 2020 you might recommend for us? One or two off the top of your head. Actually, there's two things. I think, I mean, again, if you get our reports in the back of it, there's kind of long list of the materials that inspire those reports. So there's some good reading lists in there. Then again, all my work is really about not telling people what to think, but making them think. And again, that's why I like to share my sources and, and share different things. You know, I don't think anyone has all the answers, but sometimes the conversations you have with people from different paths and different areas of interest can really be informative for everyone involved. I would say in terms of what we talked about today, there's a book by a gentleman called Johns Hopkins. It's an old book, um, but it's called World Trade Since 1431. That I found very interesting. I read that a couple of years ago, and I go back to that as a source on many occasions. I came across, um, for not reading, but actually on, on YouTube, there's a video called The Secret History of Silicon Valley by Steve Blank. And that's a very interesting story to some of the things we talked about here in terms of how um, the U.S. really started leading in the semiconductor space and where it all started and when Silicon Valley was actually solving hard problems as opposed to solving, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, delivery apps for, for pizzas or whatever it is that they, they're spending their time on these days. Um, so before all the unicorns, you know, the U.S. economy, as we know it today, was pretty much built out of, of, of some of those efforts that he discusses. So that's like another very interesting space. So I would, I would recommend that the world trade since 1431 and if you have some time, go and check out the secret history of silicon valley i think i actually have that bookmarked uh, i haven't had time to to uh, listen to his lecture the secret history of silicon valley all right Sunay, it's great always uh to do a deep dive uh with you and we hope you stay safe here in a good place uh in switzerland 
Absolutely. I got beautiful nature and, you know, today is raining a bit, but we've had some nice spring weather. So I'm enjoying that. I got my kids around me. So, um, you know, I can't complain. And uh, always great to speak with you. I look forward to coming back on and hopefully we will have some, uh, some of these development playing out on the more positive front going forward. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.